Right, we're live. We are live on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, and on uh, our podcast series. Um, Christine, say hello to the world. Hello, everybody. And uh, you'll note we've got our website at the back there. So if anybody wants to register and know about future things, it's up there behind Max. Plenty of time to write it down. Fantastic. And as we always say, this is such an enjoyable broadcast because it all, it all just works, but it's all a bit, bit mad. And poor old... Um, Kirsty, um, the fantastic Kirsty from MDS. She's always behind the scenes uh, running the dials, but um, someone, someone has dug up her internet cable um, a, a couple of doors down. So I'm winging it at this end. Um, and what's frightening the bejeebies out, out of me, Christine? I've, I've done so, I must have done 100 broadcasts, uh, but I've never had much luck on run, running the, uh, the the video. So we'll see how we get on uh, with that. So we've still got people come, coming in. As you come in, please turn off your video and your um, audio. Oh, there's um, Safi. Hello, Safi. Turn off your turn off your video. Otherwise, we're going to bring you in for the whole whole thing. So let's just give a bit of an introduction, especially as um, we got um, we had some brilliant guests um, previously, uh, Christine. But we got a brilliant guest today. So Beastalk Global: Women in Food and Farming: The Importance of Science in Our Sector. And we've got the brilliant Dr. Tina Barsby, OBE, uh, coming in. And just for those on the uh, podcast, especially if you're not fully aware of who Women in Food and Farming is, they're a group of professional women in food agriculture and the land-based industries actually why am i saying this come on christine you tell everyone what, what it's about i've, I've done this uh, eight eight times um ever, over the last few few months and you're far better at selling uh telling everyone who and what women in food and farming is and we've been going for over 10 years and it was set up originally because uh, a few women met on a farm on business and sort of looked at each other in shop and sort of said, crikey, we're all women. It was just so unusual to actually probably not be the only woman at a meeting and just felt we should do more to support each other. And when we met, we decided we would each bring along two people that nobody else knew because us senior people tended to bump into each other and knew who we were. And uh, we all went to people under 30 and they found it hugely useful being able to talk to us, network with us, maybe have a bit of, bit of advice, maybe a bit of mentoring and of course, we all enjoyed it very much as well. And I just felt that it's easy to sort of think, oh, well, I've not suffered from being a woman in my career. I've been quite happy. That doesn't mean to say that other people aren't. And I felt that this was our way of all being able to give a big bit back. And we used to meet for, for either sit down dinners or just stand up ones. But that was actually better for networking. And then sort of we missed them during lockdown. And since November, we've been having these monthly meetings. And I've got a steering group supporting me. And uh, we put out a call for, please, can you help us find some speakers? And we just got some fantastic yeah. speakers and just booked it up, booked us up to December. And so I was absolutely delighted. Yeah, you know, the, the calibre of speakers we've got is just fantastic. Yeah, but, and your, your team is, is amazing because we're a bit worried because you were doing all the heavy lifting. So we put the message out. And what was it within, within 20 minutes, Christine? We, we got all, all those speakers. <laughs> right, I've just, just got to ask um, a couple of waves and straights, but lovely waves and straights. Diana, could you turn off your video? Catherine, could you turn off your video? Otherwise, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight you to, 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 to the world. So there's two things I just wanted to have a quick catch up with you, Christine, about. Um, cereals. We were just talking about it in the in our, in our green room. Um, I attended cereals um, and I was lucky enough to do, do some filming there. It, crikey, what a, what a, what, I suppose it was, but what a relief to actually be out and meeting people um, and not having to have uh, face masks on. And of, of course, we were all uh, looking to socially distance, but it was a great event to actually meet people. Um, had you picked up anything about cereals? Uh, well, I, I wasn't there myself. What I did pick up, actually, social media-wise, was how interest, how much people had enjoyed Groundswell this year, and that it yeah. did 
exist. I mean, when I was in, in uh, running the co-op farms, Groundswell didn't exist. It's come from nowhere and is hugely exciting. And I think it's great that we've got these practical demonstrations, not showcasing farming, but real on farmers trying to learn from each other and teaching each other. That's what Groundswell came to me and came across to me in social media. I actually sort of wished I was there. There's a whole case study to be had on these, these shows. Do you, do you remember the Smithfield show uh, back of old in Earl's Court yeah. and how, how the farming community used to descend? When, when was it? November time. Um, yeah. And cause co- co- a, a very positive riot, but would always make sure they would clear up after themselves. But now you look at the evolution, revolution of lights of groundswell. Um, I, I didn't go, but yeah, for the contacts I, I knew that went, said it was a, it was a very, very positive. Yeah. And also the, the message that they're looking to push in a very positive manner being regenerative agriculture. Well, just compare that to the days of the Royals show when uh, you used to have all these yeah. hats that were going around as the stewards and having yeah. tea in the Royal in the president's enclosure and things like that. I, I just, you know, it's, it's not what farming's about anymore. It's about talking about soil and talking about uh, how how to how to farm better. Yeah. OK, so so we've got um, other live events coming up. We've got Fruit Focus coming coming up at the um, end of uh, July uh, down in Kent, obviously with a focus on, on fruit. That's going to be fascinating to, to see. And uh, yeah, let's see what happens as we get further out of um, lockdown. Um, and Christine, I've been asked on WhatsApp to ask you a slightly um, edgy question with your grocery code adjudicator hat on. What's your take on the bidding war, the bidding frenzy over Morrison's? What's your view, please? I, I tell you, it, it's fascinating that I, I don't. I wonder whether we whether we price and value businesses properly in the UK because you know the share price at Morrison's is what everybody felt the share price should be given its profits and, and everything else. And then somebody else looks at it in a completely different way, offers significantly more money than anybody felt it was worth on the stock exchange, and exactly the same happened with ASDA. And then they sort of fund it by sailing, sale and lease back and loading it with debt. And pretty much what's happened to Manchester United being, a, I mean, not that I'm a supporter, but I live very close by. Oh, yeah. And just thinking, why is it that these overseas investors value our businesses so differently from us? And that why aren't we valuing our business according to the value of their real estate and what you could do with a sale or lease back? And I just find that quite terrifying. But there's also the other thing is that if it gets into a bidding war and gets really expensive, the people who buy it are always forced into cost cutting, sale and back, all of these other things. So actually, we don't really want them to go for the highest bidder. But, yeah. it, you know, but what you know, Morrison's is being by far the most integrated supply mm-hmm. chain, right from from the field field right through their abattoirs and their pack houses and things. Does question whether somebody else might look at it as a business model and think, well, nobody else has got that. That's a way of raising some cash. So, so the worry that we've uh, we picked up um, having uh, sounded out a number of our client base is that the, 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 the collective view is, is that Morrison's won't exist in three to five years time. It'll be asset stripped uh, by these um, by these vultures co- coming in to pay the price because they, they can see that it's actually got value in the, in the way of the property and other elements. So we'd, we'll just have to see. But yeah, that's fascinating to hear. Your, your comments on it and uh, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with the with the internet um side of things as we see the increase of Ocado and, and new players um com- coming in so i suppose the only thing you can predict with uh, with retail christine is change so it's great that's the best thing about about retail is is the rate of change and don't underestimate how Ocado and also the retailers sort of battling to be different from each other has welcomed in masses of 
new starting new start businesses and new products. Ocado's product range greater than any of the other retailers because it's a very simple and efficient way for a small business to get a presence. Yeah. We must go back to the subject at hand, but it's fascinating to see these, uh, the, the new delivery uh, startups. So the likes of Gorillas, if you come across that, they've received 250 million euro of financing to expand the model in, in Europe. In London, if you're based in London and you've got the app, um, you can order upwards of two and a half thousand different grocery lines and it will be delivered to your house within 10 minutes, 24-7. So you can imagine what that's going to be like and how that might cannibalize sales. But, uh, um, but Christine, no, no one understands how it makes any money uh, because it's so cost, cost heavy in the respect of all the, all the labor and the supply chain elements of it. I suppose the point is that you've got people with money investing in it. I mean, if you remember, Amazon didn't make money for decades, did it? True. Yep. And I look at Ocado. Ocado actually hasn't made any money um, ever, but they've just flipped their model to be uh, a licensing uh, business for, uh, for for retail software um, and, and doing, doing very well on the back of that. Right, so, so we've got this advance in, in retail. Um, Christian, what about the, uh, the advance in science? Do you think we need an expert to tell us all, all about that? We do. The I think actually agriculture has has very much, I think, lagged behind technology-wise what other industries have done. And the opportunities and everything ahead of us is enormous. And uh, it'll be wonderful to hear everything that, that Tina's going to talk about. So Tina, come on in, please. And as Tina's coming in, I must remember to say to everyone, if you if you want to, no, no, if you must join Women in Food and Farming, and to do that, if you just look at the uh, the website links above me, Click onto that. That'll take you to the great Claire Smith's website at More People who look after the admin for the, for the group. And you can join there and be part of this. And when, when we get back into real life, uh, part of the face-to-face the -face meetings. Tina, hello. 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 So, so, Tina, how do you know Christine? Christine, how do you know Tina? Tina, you go first. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I've known Christine forever. Um, but the first time I remember actually meeting her was at a... University Potato Growers Research Association um, meeting in December uh, when she was a keynote speaker and I thought she was amazing really forthright and clear and so I was really pleased to meet her and get to know her a bit better. And, and I asked Christine, I, I twisted Tina's arm when we met I think it was at Fruit Focus about considering MDS and I'm delighted that NIAB is part of MDS and our sort of graduate recruitment and training development scheme as well. But yes, we had some brilliant. Dina, is, yeah. Dina is, is fabulous. I mean, there are not that many top female scientists in our sector, and uh, she's been a wonderful role model for lots of people. So thank you, Tina. Fantastic. And I've just got to ask a bit of a cheeky, cheeky question of you, of you both, because the, uh, the, the person wants to, to remain anonymous, but they've asked me this question. With both of you, um, for all the right positive reasons, uh, receiving um, your, your awards in, in the respect of uh, Tina, your OBE, and uh, Christine, your, your CBE, they want to know when you got your awards at presumably Buckingham Palace, what was the funniest thing on the day that happened to you? Because it must have been such a, an unusual positive day. What was the most entertaining, uh, funny, funniest thing that happened on the day? Go on, Christine, you go first. I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to answer a slightly different thing. When I opened my 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 card and it said I had a CBE I actually was disappointed because I would really have loved to have an OBE <laughs> what a CBE was and I had to go on the internet to discover that it was actually slightly higher <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> 
Tina, match that, please. <laughs> it, it, it's not really funny, but um, my daughter's boyfriend drove us to the pa- into the palace, and it was great that we were able to drive our own car through the gates. That was probably one of the highlights. Wow. Of course, um, we stayed overnight in one of the hotels in Trafalgar Square, and their car was broken into. My daughter's hand oh, no. stolen. So you know, it wasn't it wasn't all fun and games. Oh, oh, crikey! And, and, and come on, who who uh, who who tapped you with a sword? Go on, Christine. Well, it's not quite tapping with the sword; it's pinning your badge on. But I, I had the Queen, and she's remarkably well briefed because she came and pinned mine on and said, "I believe birthday congratulations are in order today for you." And I, I said, "How do you know that?" Wow! God, I'm so stupid. She just said, "Somebody's just." Told <laughs> I was most impressed that somebody picked that up. Uh, fantastic. And, and Tina, what about yourself? Who, who gave you so, your, your badge of honour? Well, Prince Charles. And he asked me, what is your specialism? Because, of course, my OBE was for agricultural okay. science biotechnology. So I was very tempted to say genetic engineering, Your Majesty. But I thought that might end in a very long conversation. <laughs> And the rest of the people in the in the room would not appreciate. Excellent. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Th- thank you, ladies. And sorry, I, I don't mean to embarrass you by that. I'm sure you're not embarrassed. It's uh, just this person wanted to to, to know and also to honour you both in, in some respects for for all, all the good work that you've done. Right, right come on, let's let's get on with this. Christine, okay. can you push yourself aside and, and go to the wings? So, so Tina, this I, I say this to a number of ladies that we we interview on this but you could have done anything you could have gone into politics you could could have gone into um mainstream business you could have become a barrister you could, could have become a um a, a senior level banker what 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 was it about science and um, what was it about plants why did you go down that direction please well um i think the the start of it was going for walks with my mother and her knowing the names, the common names of all the wild, wild plants that we would pass. And, you know, we would try, I would try to remember them. But I think the real reason was um, knowledge. I, 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 from a very early age, I wanted to know the truth. Now, what is the truth? And I think that's where science comes in. I remember at school, um, being told that everyone thought all swans were white until they discovered Australia. And that really set me thinking about what is truth and how do you, how do you know what's true? And the other thing was, I don't know if anyone remembers playing mastermind, this game with those little colored. Yeah. And to do that, to play that game and to play it well, you have to have a certain logic uh, in your thinking. And so bringing together all swans are white and playing mastermind uh, set me up. And why plants? Because I I guess when I started learning biology formally at the age of about 11 or 12, I realised that plants didn't need to move around to reproduce or to find their food. And I thought that was that was just amazing. And there was such a diversity of plant life. So I've, I've always worked on plants. I did a degree in agricultural botany and I've stuck with it. Fantastic. And, and did your parents um, have a, a, a science background, an agricultural background? No, no, not at all. My, my father was a coal miner in Leicestershire. Um, oh. My mother was, well, she was a housewife for a long time, but she was a cleaner in a Dr. Bernardo's home in Leicestershire. 
Wow. Brothers and sisters? Uh, one brother sells furniture. My sister works yep. police in the courts. And my other brother, who's now died, he had his own business in quarrying. Wow. Okay, okay. so it's quite, quite a, an extended family. Uh, science. So how do you define science then for the uninitiated? Well, I started to think about this. So I, I started, I actually looked on Wikipedia and it says that science <laughs> is a systematic enterprise that builds and organises knowledge in the form of testable explanations and predictions about the universe. And the really important thing about science is that these predictions and explanations are testable. And that distinguishes science from opinion and belief. So when we say we want science-based regulation, it means we want the underlying evidence on which decisions are made to be derived from testable predictions, or as scientists call them, hypotheses. And that means they have to be capable of being proved wrong. So it's no good, um, you know, if you, if you never visit Australia, you'd, you'd always think all swans were, right, were white. But and I, because we're going to be having a discussion later and some of us are going to join breakout groups, I think that it, this is interesting, this terminology around science and other words, because sometimes we mistake description for science. So one of my favourites is we label something natural. And natural is deemed by many people to be good for you. But you have to ask the question, does that stand up to scientific testing, to scientific rigour? As a scientist, you're taught that every hypothesis has to be testable. So when you think about the, these descriptions, and natural is one of them, none of the crops which are grown in the UK are natural to the UK. Are pesticides unnatural? Many people think they are, but they, most of them were derived from the natural mechanisms that a plant will use to defend itself against pests. So there's an element of naturalness in many pesticides. And organic is also not a scientific term. It's merely a description. Uh, a group of people decide so whether something's natural or organic and what isn't, and that can change depending on the circumstances. So if we're going to support terms like that, we need to be sure that the evidence that we're relying on to say that they're a good thing or a bad thing is science-based, is testable uh, uh, and, and true. There are other terms I wanted to bring up, like regenerative agriculture and agroecology, which are terms which have become fashionable recently when we all realise farming needs to respond to depleted organic matter on um, in the soils and we're, we're losing the much needed biodiversity without which we wouldn't have food production. Um, but the terms are new, but the practices are not. And anyone who's studied agriculture can, can tell you that. Uh, you mentioned cereals earlier, the cereals event. I saw a guy with a sweatshirt with a logo on it saying, farming, working 400 hours a week to feed people who think you're trying to kill them. And that, that made me think again about, about science and, and, and fact. And it really is a reflection of a lack of understanding of science, which is quite widespread in mm. our society. But I, I mean, I'm, the, pandem the pandemic was an awful thing, but I think the impact of science, not just in the development of vaccines, but also in understanding the epidemiology of the virus 
I think that will have helped people to understand what science is and what science can do. Yeah. Okay, that's a really interesting point. This, uh, I, I come up with this much used phrase about six out of 10 kids don't know where um, fresh, fresh produce comes from. Um, and if you dive even deeper, um, you, you could question how many people actually know about any any, any form of um, of science but it's a really good point that you make about the pandemic with the uh, obviously the uh, who comes to mind the likes of uh, professor chris witty um and and his way of delivering um a, a message so that we're fully informed as to where we are at that point in time without say the political emotion that could be attributed to it but but science what Let's let's think about what science has done for our sectors. What what's in your vast experience? What stands out in your mind? What what has science done for our sectors? Do you think? While you were just you were just saying six out of ten people don't know um, don't know something. I mean, I I remember hearing on the radio at the time when genetic when um, a couple of supermarkets were selling genetically modified tomatoes, tin tomatoes. I remember hearing that over 70% of the British public didn't know that tomatoes had genes in them. And quite a proportion of those people thought that the genes were put there by meddling scientists. And I, at that moment, yeah. I really despaired and I knew that, you know, genetic modification wasn't, wasn't going to be a thing in this country. I went home and I asked my son, do you know where your genes are? And he said, in the cupboard. So, you know, there's always a... There's always, a, there's always another answer. So when we think about science and what science has, has really done for our sector, because there's an awful lot of, of money, awful lot of public taxes spent on science, not to mention all of the private money that, that is, is spent in, in companies yeah. to find new solutions to agricultural problems. We could talk about many, many things, but foremost in my mind is plant breeding. So probably because my background is in plant genetics, plant science. And of course, agronomy and soil management are important. But I, I think, you know, if we just think about plant breeding for a moment. So there was a, a woman who was a deputy director of NIAB many years ago. I was the first female director of NIAB. Uh, but Valerie was the deputy director in the 1980s. And she did some work, which was, again, repeated by... Uh, a guy called Ian Mackay in the British Society of Plant Breeders in the 2000s, which demonstrated that more than 90% of the of yield improvements on farm are due to plant breeding. Wow. And we, it, I mean, that just reminds me to say that when we are thinking about measuring sustainability, we need to think about what it what it is we, we want to achieve in the end. So, I mean, I believe we need to measure sustainability in relation to output. So how much energy, how much carbon per tonne of food produced. So I would always measure it against food production. And I know that's not the only way, but I think even if we are going to look at whole farm metrics, we do need to think about production in relation to outputs, which is the way most scientists have thought about it for a very long time. So um, variety choice. So the farmer's choice of a variety is arguably the most important and the first decision many farmers make. So at cereals, so this year, there were none of the chemical companies were there. None of the 
big distributors of, of agricultural products and none of the seed companies. But we had very uh, high turnout at NIAB stand where farmers come for advice on varieties. Always at this time of year, of course, they're just about just going into harvest, whatever they, um, they are doing on their farm to get the maximum out of last year's varieties probably already been done. Um, and if you think about it, the earliest farmers were plant breeders. They selected the best types, crossed them with others with different characteristics. So they take something with a high yield, something with a disease resistance and cross them. And, you know, that, that was very empirical. Today, we have very um, sophisticated systems. So we have sophisticated mathematical models to predict how you can combine traits and how best to select them. We have genome sequences for almost all the crops that we work with. And from them, we can have molecular markers, which indicate the presence of a trait. So uh, you can have a, a, a disease which you would only see in a, in a, a, a at harvest, which well, the, DNA, the DNA footprint of which you can see in a tiny seedling. So breeders have got enormously, uh, breed, the, the toolbox that the breeder can call on has, has grown enormously. I think one of the most interesting things to me is that some crosses are really difficult to make. And so you, you see a wild species or a, in some cases a variety that, that won't cross with the plant that you, that you want it to cross to. And so breeders then take the problem into the laboratory and carry out a kind of IVF. So they make the cross in the lab and then nurture it in the test tube or in the lab until it's ready to be transplanted back into the soil. And I find that fascinating. I find that we can, we can help nature along just in the same way that we do with human and animal breeding and, and with, with humans. And, and Tina, I'm, I'm so, so fascinated that, so my backdrop today is, um, is all seed rape. We did a broadcast with um, South Africa two weeks ago on, on citrus and we had the head of the um, R&D um, department for the Citrus Research Institute and they just had a doubling of their, their funding to do more research on, on citrus. So you've you got um, experts like yourself in, in your particular area, then globally you've got other experts working on the on the likes of citrus or avocados is a, is a fascinating one because the, the lead time for avocados I think is even longer than, 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 than wheat. Can, can you give us some examples of where these in vitro methods have been have been used? Because it would be fascinating to hear that. Now that you've mentioned long-term, so one of the things I worked on and myself in the lab was protoplast fusion and in brassicas, so in all seed rape and other brassicas. And I worked on cauliflowers, moving male sterility around because you couldn't um, cross the source of the male sterility into the cauliflower. So again, we took it into the laboratory and we fused, we took the cell walls off, we fused the protoplast together and grew these cauliflowers that have male sterility which meant you could have hybrid cauliflowers. So I think of all that work, I think of all of the work it takes to produce a cauliflower, and I go into a supermarket and they're on sale for 60p, and it just yeah. wrong to me. And I just don't know how that can be justified. Yeah. So that, that would be one example, but I think a, a very good example is the synthetic wheat that was produced at NIAB. So wheat is a hybrid yeah. of actually three grasses, but uh, the which which occurred 12,000 years ago in the Fertile Crescent. So the last cross was between a tetraploid wheat and a, and a diploid grass called uh, Aegilops tauchii. 
And um, this hybridization only happened once. Well, that's what scientists now believe at the moment. And so all of the wheat all over the world has the same origin. So whether you're using ancient lines, wow. land pieces, mixtures, modern varieties, they're all basically from the same origin. And so we thought that it was important to extend the diversity available to the plant breeder. And although that cross can occur in nature, it clearly doesn't occur very often. So again, we gave it a helping hand by taking it into the lab, carrying out in vitro fertilization and growing up what we called the synthetic wheat, um, which I was told by Tom Heap was a really, really bad term and no one, you know, we, scientists often choose the wrong words. So synthetic, resynthesized, I suppose most people would understand what that means, but it meant that we could bring in new sources of disease resistance, potentially higher yield, higher yields, drought resistance, higher levels of nitrogen wow. utilization. And those things cross with modern wheat. As you've said before, this is a very long process. Uh, it's been going on now for probably seven to 10 years, but the material is now in the hands of the plant breeder and it will be in your bread before very long. So, so is, is that it in the respect of uh, natural selection, natural breeding? Uh, what, what about GM and, and, and gene editing? Uh, what, what's the place for those new, new technologies? And, and, and can you see that coming to be? Is, is that the next evolution, the next revolution? It's, it's one of the, one of the um, I suppose, disappointments of my career is, is that GM was not um, acceptable in the way that we imagined it would be. Partly because we just saw it as another way to generate variation, which the breeder could have access to. But also because, again, when I personally worked on potatoes, and I was working on nematode resistance when a uh, nematicide called Temek, those of you who, I think it's called Temek, somebody could probably correct yeah, me. Wow was going to be banned. And so we thought, what a great solution for organic farmers. You know, we'll introduce this protein from peas, which um, means that the, the nematode can't reproduce as quickly and you get resistance to the nematode. And it was a great shock to me when it was decided that you couldn't be GM and organic. Uh, but equally, there are some the other thing, of course, that happened was that it became very expensive to put a GM product on the market. And so only a very few large companies could afford to do that. So I'm quite optimistic with gene editing because gene editing can is essentially a simpler process. So I, the way I describe gene editing is that you're creating a mutation. And again, people go, eh, not mutations, that's a horrible word. But mutations are responsible for all of the differences that we see around us. So a variegated leaf, a different flower shape. I mean, that's what um, plant breeders are looking for. They're looking for something different that's been created by, by a mutation. And for many, many years, they've used chemical mutagens to make these changes. So everyone talks about uh, the example of golden promised barley, which is in most beers. So everyone's drinking mutated barley and they don't seem to mind. But, and what gene editing will do 
is to create mutations, but in a targeted way. So you choose the mutation that you want, and you don't just mutate the whole genome and create all kinds of variability in the plant, which you need to sort out. So you just just do the, the one thing that you want to do. And so gene editing can create those new mutations. And one of the best examples is virus resistance in sugar beet. So, you know, everyone knows that we've wow. been in chemicals because they've been, insecticides in particular, there have been concerns about the neonicotinoids harming bees. You know, it's not really surprising that an insecticide harms insects and bees are insects. And for a long time, a certain level of that was deemed acceptable. Now it isn't. And so we, we need some other solutions. And genetic solutions, you know, there's genetics out there to solve many, many of our farming problems. We just need to allow the technologies that will open those things up quickly. Um, of course, we need to produce our food in the most environmentally friendly manner. And I believe that includes gene editing. It certainly it includes muta creating mutations in that way. GM can deliver new combinations of genes. So with GM, you'd be introducing a new, a new characteristic, which may come from another plant, um, or it may come from the same plant, you may just want more of it. Um, but gene, Genetic modification is much more difficult for people to accept because it's not something it's it's not something that you could you could find in nature. So genetic modification per se requires um, some some change to the genome. Whereas gene editing, you know, in theory, it would take a very very long time to find what you wanted to find through gene editing to find that mutation. But in, in theory, yes, you can find almost all of those changes out there in nature. So I, I hope those things have given some food for thought. I've not got into much detail in any of them, but I hope we'll have some interesting... That's been fantastic. Because, Tina, where it's been um, so interesting is just getting your, your perspective of how you've seen things change to, to date. So, so let's get the crystal ball out. Where do you, where, where can you envisage your sector being five years, 10 years down the line, please? Well, I really, really hope that we are able to use gene editing in our crops because if people want pesticides, this is the best way to do it. Um, I really hope we'll be able to, we'll be wow. able to use that genetic variability relatively freely compared to GM because that means it'll be accessible to public sector institutions, it'll be accessible to small companies, which it isn't at the moment. Um, it's only accessible, G G GM is only accessible to very large companies. And so I think you could see an explosion of SMEs and more more impact from public sector research. Okay, so you think the technology is there, but the block, the blockage is the, the endorsement, the, the, the legalization of, of that technology? So the, the block, the block is regulation. Now the regulators would, because it's, and it's costly to 
put forward a dossier which shows that your product is safe. Now, the regulators would say they're only responding to consumer demand. Well, you know, it was a bit chicken and egg for me. I'm not sure which is which is comes first. And, and just, um, I forgot to ask you very rudely at the beginning, could you just give an understanding um, to, to the people darting, because there'll be a lot of people uh, watching in on an international basis, NIAB, um, how, how's NIAB uh, created? What, what do you do with your with your team, with your fantastic colleagues on a, on a day-to-day basis to further this area of agriculture, please? Okay, so, so NIAB uh, um, started in 2000, uh, no, in 1919, so just after the First World War when food security was a a big issue in the UK. And NIAB's role basically was to purify varieties that were coming out of the public breeding programs. And eventually NIAB became the institution like Jeves in France, Bundesdorschland in Germany, which gave the um, variety rights to to a variety. So that the plant breeder could then market their variety freely. And I have also uh, w- worked on the recommended list. So it was used to be called the NIAB recommended list. And obviously it's now the HDB recommended list, but NIAB still does much of that work. It does, it actually does all of the um, national work for varieties under the, under DEFRA. So as a, as a contract with DEFRA, and it does a lot of the work for HDB on the recommended lists. So we provide, uh, and then, but that's one thing. So then, in about the early two thousands, um, NIAB decided that there was a real problem in that the there was no public plant breeding, and so NIAB sponsored from its own money from the sale of land in Cambridge some public good breeding in wheat. So the the, the recensus, and then we've we've basically merged with or acquired other organisations. So tag being the NIAB tag network so we have a, a large farmer membership mainly and of course in 2016 we took on East Morning Research where Fruit Focus will be on the 21st of July yeah. so we now have the delight of um, being strawberry and raspberry breeders and if you buy wow. Morling Centenary strawberries in your supermarket they would have been bred at East Morning. Fantastic. So would it be a, a nice statement to say that uh, NIAB is in rude health under your fantastic steward, stewardship over the lo- last few years? Well, yes, it's a, we've, we had a very really good year last year, which we didn't expect. I mean, last April in the pandemic, I thought this would this is going to be the end of NIAB. It's just going to be too difficult. But everyone kept going. That's the only thing I can say. Instead of, wow. you know, the thing about NIAB, everybody um, just gets on with it and has a real can-do attitude. So instead of waiting for the government to tell us whether it was safe to go out and do our field trials or not, we worked it out for ourselves. You know, we may have to take two cars, we may have to separate, but at least we we did that. So I'm actually retiring um, September the 30th, (gasps) my last day. Um, But... um, I know that NIAB will be in good hands. My successor has been chosen. I can't tell you who it is because the appointment hasn't been endorsed by the board, but um, I think it'll be carrying on, going from strength to strength. One of the things I wanted to say actually about 
you know, being a woman. I mean, obviously, I've been a woman in charge of NIAB for quite a long time, for sort of 13, 14 years. And I didn't attach any significance to that at all. I mean, we have a lot of women at NIAB. You know, biology was a subject that more girls chose to do than boys. And so you end up with more girls doing biology degrees and therefore more girls at NIAB. Um, But I I hadn't realised until I said I was going to retire how important that had been for some of the younger women coming into NIAB to know that there was a woman chief executive and, uh, you know, someone that they could come and talk to and say, you know, heck, I'm pregnant. What am I going to do? Or heck, I really don't, you know, I'm not really, I don't really think I want to do this anymore. We have such a diverse organization. People can move around and, and find their niche. So it's really good. Um, Tina, whilst you've been talking, I just had uh, an individual WhatsApp me to say that uh, she used to uh, work with you and you were one of the best bosses that she ever, ever had. And she wishes you all the very best in your retirement. So I think I think that uh, that comment is going to be uh, it, it endorse the, the, the industry over. And it goes without saying, I don't think NIAB would be in the uh, in the positive state it is if it wasn't for for, for, for yourself. So, so Tina, well, let's, um, we've got some. So... I was just going to say my of management has always been to hire good people and let them get on with it you know NIAB is not a (laughs) top-down organization and it never will be so there you go oh well let's let's just continue continue on on that theme uh briefly what 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 are your if if you've got um um a a team coming to you who are are a new startup in, in agriculture what would be your top three tips as to how to make a success in the sector go on well, I think, first of all, go and talk to and listen to the people who you want to use your product. Wow. <laughs> so often doesn't happen. And also, I, I would say, if you're not a scientist, align yourself with, you know, farming is a, a science-based um, dis- subject. Yeah. So if you're not aligned with a scientist, there are plenty out there who could who would be willing to help you. Fantastic. There, there we go. Masterclass from, from, from Tina. We'll, we'll, we'll ask you some more questions as we get into, into the breakout room. Right, we're going to have a go at uh, playing um, some fantastic videos that have been made, um, created by three lovely ladies. As I said, it's uh, at the warm-up. Uh, our normal Kirsty from MDS isn't, isn't here because someone's dug up her internet cable, so she's left me to set this uh, this YouTube video running. Tina, just stay stay there. When, on the basis I get get it running, then then turn off your video because I might need you as, a, as my supporter. The last time I, I did this was with Raymond Blanc, would you believe, uh, that I had to run, run a video uh, with him with, for the British Apples and Pears uh, seminar, seminar that we that we ran but it all failed so let's see how we get on with this one da, 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 da. so tina you you keep talking um, i was going to say that that looks like me talking but i don't know if it, if it actually is <laughs> <laughs> so, what else what else can i say i can say that there, there are during the last few years there have been a lot of senior women in agriculture you know, Christine, Jane King. Excellent. Yeah, it's going to be. Yeah. Debbie. Yeah. It's, it, it, Tina, it's like red, red minis. You start talking about red minis and you, and you start to see so many ladies already in um, that are progressing well. I'm, I'm all coming through. Right. Let's, let's play this, uh, this video. Tina, if you turn off your uh, video, please. 
I think I'm speaking to the converted now, uh, trying to convince Hughes that science is important to our sector. But what I do think we need to do a better job is of convincing other people that it's important and attracting scientists, engineers, uh, anybody that's interested in research to come into our sector. I, for one, struggled with the Institute of Mechanical Engineers uh, when I applied for a fellowship because I was running the co-op's farming business at the time and they did not recognise, they actually rejected it on the basis that I was no longer working in engineering. And uh, I did a reasonable job of convincing them about everything that I was doing and they retracted it and uh, did make me a fellow in the end. But I think the advent of technology, how difficult some of the decisions that everybody needs to make on a farm now as they tra trade off productivity and sustainability and all the different options and permutations of those, that we have to have technology to support us. And I'm hugely excited that there are businesses that are coming up that are putting the decisions in the hands of the farmers. So the advice, it's not in the hands of the advisors, it's in the hands of the farmers to make their own decisions. Thank you. My name is Eliana Jones. Um, I work for BSF as an agronomy manager, advising growers and agronomists uh, in Lincolnshire and uh, South Yorkshire area. Um, when it comes to science and what it means to me, um, the rather usual start that I have, the, the first word which comes to mind is sacrifice. And the reason for that is that um, after I finished uni together with my parents, we had a discussion and decided that the money that they saved to have a stove to warm in the winter in a post-Soviet apartment uh, would be better spent by sending me to do my master's and PhD and they really gave me the money for their journey as such um, and that put um, you know a, in a way responsibility but as well um, it was a joint decision so it was you know all of us together as a family investing in the future um, I did the master and a PhD in crop protection um, the, the science and research started in Romania and not out of choice really but out of necessity in life i changed my career quite a lot and that's what science gave to me i had all this transferable skills so you need to focus you need to deliver the, the value from from a particular project or a set of research and that helped me in whatever role i had so keeping focused, um, um, you know, being analytical and deliver the value out of uh, a project or of a product. So that helped me uh, in research, that helped me in teaching, that helped me in technical support, and that helped me as well in um, a commercial role. So, um, yeah, that's uh, science opened uh, up for me, the, the, the transferable tools. So what does science mean to me? Well, as an agronomist, I was always keen to learn from last year and develop into this next coming year. So I was always looking for solutions. So science is almost about feeding the curiosity to get better. And those were really, those are really three aspects. One, trying to find solutions, particularly now genetic solutions to improved productivity, uh, reduction in use of water, reduction in pest and disease impacts, etc. Um, but also now learning about new technologies and being able to implement them and deploy them at pace to sort of improve knowledge and understanding. 
Um, but equally now, it's much more about understanding the impact of what we're doing on lives, the planet, etc., and just being a lot more minded about resources. So I think we've come a long way, but we've still got lots of questions and needs and answers to be found. Fantastic. Tina, could you come back in? Christine, could you come back in? Luna, can you come back in? And uh, um, Deb, Debbie, can you come back in as well? Because it'd be fascinating to hear what you... Tina, what did you think? What do you think of the videos, please? Wow. <laughs> I could have listened for... I could have listened to many more, to more of what they had to say. But also, I'm sure there are plenty of other people on the call, on the in the meeting who will um belinda's just said are we all feeling the love for science this evening <laughs> i think i think that's true i think we are yeah i think there's a really good illustrations of how important science is to farming food and farming christine views please of the videos uh oh i i always love little bit of an extra an extra thing because we never know what Tina's going to say so of course when we put our videos together thinking oh gosh it's going to sound ridiculous after Tina's but I just thought they were they were different you know I was talking about the use of software to make decisions you know science you know it just it's just, it's just a huge spectrum and uh, you know I would love for, for people you know at, at university to be looking at this and to seeing what the opportunities what they could have in our sector. Yep, and it goes without saying. Elena, you look at your video, and thank you for being so so um, so candid about 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 your story. That the fact that your family had to sacrifice so much for you for you to get the suntan that you've got today for being uh, in 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 a very hot field for the for the last couple of weeks. I think that that's that that just shows the 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 amount of effort that goes in, especially on a, on a family basis. But what do you think? What do you think? Having seen uh, Christine's uh, video and Debbie's video. Well, I, I just thought I got it wrong. Uh, I should have said oh, of, of the value of science, not my story of science, but probably, you know, a bit of distance value to it. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Uh, to me, science was always about being close to wonderful people and having, you know, your role models next to you. And to me today was a confirmation of that. So in this group and the entire group, they're wonderful people with wonderful stories. So, uh, yeah, excited to be part of it. Excellent. Come on, Debbie, what's your story? <laughs> I just want to do more and get better. And it's it's having the curiosity to want to do that. And I, I, I see that in young people and want to nurture it. Um, they, they, you know, it, it is also about thinking about best use of resources and not being selfish in the use of resources. So yeah. I think science gives you the opportunity to do that, to look at things in a different way, which is wonderful. And, and everyone, do you, do you think that with the, on the back of the pandemic, we're seeing a, a big rush of people looking to come into the fresh food and the agricultural sectors because they don't want to be, no offence to a solicitor or an accountant, but they want, they want to get involved in, in agriculture, fresh food and put something uh, back in. So do you think there's actually a, a positive sea change that can come in on the back of the pandemic to get more people involved in biology, to get more people involved in agronomy and, and seed breeding? Tina, what do you think? I certainly, I certainly hope so. I mean, I, I really sympathise with what with what Christine uh, was saying. I mean, one of our one of our star uh, people in our DUS, so in our variety evaluation, 
I'm sure has a degree in physics and we converted him because he came to work <laughs> as a student. So we have one of the good things we have is student placements in the summer. So people come to work for us for eight, 10 weeks. Yeah. And, uh, this guy came and decided he wanted to do it. And we have another one who was a mathematician. So I think they only need to get a taste of it and uh, it can change their minds. I'll say exactly the same about MD Max. That you know, we, we just advertise ourselves as as a, a two year program where people can get experience in you know work experience in the food industry and get trained. And we've got people who've done um, bioarchaeology, chemistry, maths, languages, geography coming to do MDS because they're attracted by the graduate training program. And of course, once they get into our food industry, they're hooked and they don't leave um, and, and just get find themselves great careers within it. Uh, but we've had a massive, massive increase in applications um, dur during this whole this whole you know lockdown, COVID, everything we've been through. And I think it's because people have seen the importance of what we do, and that we are a very secure sector for employment. Carry on, ladies. I've just got to kill my video. And and so, um, Christine. So I'm, I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing mirages then um that this um uh increase of um of the younger generation coming in you, you're actually seeing this uh within mds oh yeah we've got uh, we, we, when i started we had about 30 trainees we've now got 75 but but that big increase the biggest increase has been in the last 12 months and not only trainees coming in but more businesses joining mds saying we want to have access to those trainees we want to give them secondments help train them and give them jobs when they leave Excellent. And Tina, NIAB and the associated businesses associated with, with NIAB, what, what would your advice be to the younger generation or, or people looking to make a change? How can they get involved with your specific sector, please? Well, you know, it's I, I think just apply because you know, look, look, <laughs> look, for, look for jobs and apply for them because we don't, although, um, you know, a lot of the time you're looking for somebody who is specialised, that's not always the case. So in some of the roles, you know, it might, might ask for a junior plant pathologist. Well, we, we do a lot of training of the right people ourselves. Yeah. So. Yep. Grow your own. Well done, everyone. We're, we're slightly running out of time. Christine, can you just wrap up for us? And I, oh, I, I think it would be fantastic. I know you're going to, but if you could just endorse everything that, that Tina has done within her career. Within, within, oh, go on, Christine. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tina's fabulous. Tina, as you, you know, as people have been telling you, you are a role model for lots of people in the industry. Um, thank you very much for coming on this programme today, because I think that lots more people will get to hear about you and what you've done. So, so that's brilliant. And um, uh, we had a discussion before. You're not quite disappearing from the industry, but um, I'm sure that we'll, you know, everybody will still enjoy watching everything you do. And I know that you'll still keep contributing to it. So thank, thank you very much for joining us today. But, you know, moreover, you know, thanks for everything. Thanks for everything you've done for the industry. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Everyone, before, before we wrap up and go into the breakout rooms, please make sure that you join up with uh, Women in Food and Farming by the link above. Debbie, thank you very much for, for bringing Alona in. Alona, if, um, if we were going to be um, a cereal farmer for next autumn, what crops would you be recommending? What wheat, what barley, what rate, please? <laughs> I'll probably need to spend a few more weeks in the field with all the breeders. So, uh, um, well, I'll be, I, I can't, yeah, I'll be promoting now. Oh, do, 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 just help me be a great trainer of old a million years ago. You'll need more, more. 
have, have we have we still got housing? Have we still got housing as a as a barley? Have we still got apex as a rape? I can't remember any weeds. I I I, I was I was appalling at my plant 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 pathology. You have to be really really careful and especially about answering that question because you're you know whoever you whichever one you yeah. say all of the other breeders will not be your friend. So you have to be yeah. right. No problem. So everyone, let's go into these breakout rooms. Just to thank everyone on the live streaming of Facebook and, uh, and and LinkedIn or watching on the record on the, on the podcast. Make sure you join up with Women in Food and Farming.